ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's been a government knows best approach and they haven't listened. They've come at the discussion table with preconceived solutions and ideas that they've almost retrofitted to every community and it's been wrong. And that's such a simple explanation of where it's gone wrong. My government is concerned with the fight against inflation. Peter Dutton's concerned about fighting culture wars. And I think if the Prime Minister wants to renege on an election commitment he's taken to the last two elections, I think he should call an election. The housing system is cooked in this country. And I was praying that the Minister and the Government would finally wake up to themselves and do the right thing. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RM Breakfast and Q&A on ABC TV, joining you from Wurundjeri Country here in Melbourne. And I'm Frank Kelly, host of Saturday Extra here on the Gadigal Land of Eora Nation in Sydney. And incredibly, it's 16 years since Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, stood in the Parliament and said sorry to members of the Stolen Generation for the trauma and the suffering they've lived through. And on the day of that national apology 16 years ago, the government also announced the Closing the Gap strategy, which is a means by which the country can not only target policies to improve the lives and outcomes for Indigenous Australians, but can also measure the results. Well, this week, the Albanese government tabled its annual Closing the Gap report. It's the first update since the referendum on Indigenous Voice to Parliament went down, and it was a fail, a big fail. In the past year, only four of the 19 areas targeted showed improvement, and four actually went backwards. So there were a few new promises. We're going to talk about all of this because the news wasn't great. Narelda Jacobs, 10 News presenter and Noongar woman, will be joining us soon to talk about it all. But first... Wedding bells are ringing in the I think that music gives it away. That's right. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has announced on social media, uh, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, his engagement to his partner, Jodie Hayden. Uh, yes, he shared the news on the site X, you know, picture of them together, very happy, selfie, and all it said was, she said yes. Oh, uh, so quite, yeah, sweet. <laughs> it is, and quite quickly, sort of the internet, well, the Australian internet went into meltdown. Um, he clearly proposed to her, Fran, on Valentine's Day. Prime Minister, cheesy, I love it. <laughs> but Fran, it just got me thinking, like, I don't think we uh, have had a Prime Minister get married while in office. Well, no, certainly we haven't had one get engaged. Whether he gets married in office, I guess we'll see how quickly the wedding's going to be. I don't know. And if he gets re-elected. I think he's only the second Prime Minister, Australian Prime Minister, to be in the Lodge unmarried because his previous long marriage had ended. So the second one of those and the first to get engaged. So, you know, good on him, good luck to them and congratulations to Anthony Albanese and Jody Hayden. Yeah, for sure. Look, it's a lovely story amid... um some some heavy news this week, so yeah. we thought we'd bring you that. But, all of it, you know. all of it. Meanwhile, we're going to talk about Senate estimates. How good is that? Kind of like Christmas for opposition Senate estimates. Usually a minefield for governments. Put simply, you know, they are hard to understand, actually. Estimates are an opportunity for senators to interrogate and scrutinise how the government is spending your tax dollars. And this week it was the Home Affairs Department in the hot seat 
the opposition forcing the department to release details about the cohort of detainees. You might remember they were released last year after that High Court decision ruling that indefinite immigration detention was unlawful. The government was under intense political pressure about their handling of those detainees at the end of last year, and the coalition is not going to let it go. The headlines are not pretty, really, are they, for a government, PK? No, they're they're quite alarming on the face of it. I mean, the department revealed that of the 149 immigration detainees released last year as a result of that high court decision, nearly half have been convicted of violent offences, kidnapping or or robbery, and and that 36 of the former detainees have not been required to wear ankle bracelets. Now, noting that all of these former detainees have all served their sentences already, but but that doesn't mean it's not an issue that is of community concern. And significantly, it was also revealed that despite emergency laws being rushed through late last year, remember when, when all of that happened, no applications for preventative detention orders have been made to the courts. The opposition, of course, used question time this week to overwhelm, to pepper the government with questions on this issue. And their target was one particular person, the Immigration Minister, Andrew Giles. The Albanese government has released 149 hardcore criminals from immigration detention, including seven murderers and 37 sex offenders. On 18 November last year, the minister stated that, quote, ankle bracelets, electronic monitoring, I should say to be clear, is a mandatory requirement under the bill that is coming to effect today. Can the minister explain why 36 of the 149 hardcore criminals he released are not wearing their mandatory ankle bracelets? Fran, it's been like that all week, unrelenting pressure on the immigration minister and Peter Dutton really weighing in, calling on the prime minister to sack him. Now, Andrew Giles has been fighting back, citing four layers of protection visa conditions, electronic monitoring, curfews, preventative detention orders in place for these people since their release, but no answers uh, to on who's been placed on these preventative detention orders. Something called the Community Protection Board is working with the government on that. But as long as there's no answers, I mean, it's politically fertile ground for the opposition that we know thrives in this space. It is. And, and you know, it is true for a government these processes take place because there is, you know, th- there are laws and rights that that people have. So they need to get everything sort of buckled down tight before they can move on these things. Otherwise, they'll just go, someone will take them back to court and it'll be all on again. But PK, all this shouting and debating this week over this really overshadowed the findings of an inquiry into the operations of the Department of Home Affairs that was conducted by former ASIO chief Dennis Richardson. And they were pretty blockbuster in themselves. Dennis Richardson found the department had awarded contracts to manage offshore processing centres. So that's places like in Nauru or or Manus Island, they'd given those contracts to companies with suspected links to drugs, firearms and bribery. He found there was a complete lack of due diligence by the department before these multi-million dollar contracts were awarded. Basically, they hadn't bothered to find out whether the people getting these huge contracts were reputable. And if they'd asked the security agencies that the answer would have been no, they're not. So a major dysfunction Peter Dutton, of course, was the minister at the time. He maintains he had no knowledge, wasn't informed of these issues. The government did its best to kind of, you know, get those findings up in light this week, the findings of the Richardson inquiry, without too much luck, I think. You know, and so it goes on, PK, sledge for sledge. That's right. It does go on sledge after sledge. But this is where the opposition wants to be 
talking. This is this is the ground they want to be on. Yeah, uh, they they really have run out of I think fight when it comes to trying to push the government on its broken promise. On yeah, they the really tax ran cuts. aground on the tax cuts, didn't yeah. they? At the end of last week, that's I what think, we were all saying. I think, and so this estimates process and this issue has allowed them to sort of try and get on something where they do feel comfortable. I found that really interesting. Mm. And PK, there's many, many government departments and ministers for estimates. Penny Wong has just been before the Foreign Affairs Committee as we're recording this on a Thursday morning um, with a strong warning for Israel about Rafa. Finally, I wish to restate the Australian government's grave concerns about an impending major Israeli ground offensive in Rafa. This would bring further devastation to more than a million civilians seeking shelter in Rafah, many there by Israel's direction. Large-scale military operations in densely populated areas risks extensive civilian casualties. Australia believes this would be unjustifiable. Our message to Israel is listen to the world, do not go down this path. Foreign Minister Penny Wong addressing estimates, a very strong statement from her. This is a catastrophe in, in waiting that 1.5 million Palestinians essentially uh, were shepherded into Rafa, an area that Ed Husick, the industry minister who's been outspoken on these issues, joined me on RM Breakfast to say, you know, this is an area that's not much bigger than Heathrow Airport, 1.5 million people there. If you think about that, there. that's staggering, isn't it? That many people in that smaller space and some kind of ground offensive about to get underway. That's terrifying. And on the question of listen... Our message is Israel to listen to the world, which Penny Wong said. On that very question, Ed Husick said that they they are ignoring their allies. Um, so he went a bit further uh, and really called them out for not listening to their allies. And he mentioned the United States and Joe Biden's comments. He's talked about indiscriminate bombing across Israel, not just this one place. but um, and, and the US is concerned about a ground um, invasion of Rafa. There's a strengthening of the language here and it's noticeable and notable. Yeah, that those lines, Australia believes this would be unjustifiable, a message to Israel, do not go down this path. So I think that's probably the strongest message from mm. the government so far on this. I think so too. Look, changing the conversation quite dramatically um, uh, and to another huge story this week. There have been many and so this one's important. The Nationals have been making headlines. This follows on from that video released by the Daily Mail. It broke on Friday night, so after the last podcast. Footage of Barnaby Joyce on his back, on the footpath, swearing into his phone, quite clearly drunk. He says he, he was swearing about himself, like rebuking himself in a phone call to his wife. He says that it was because the alcohol was mixed with prescription medication, but it's raised questions about him and his ability to uh, continue on on the, on the shadow front bench. It's raised questions about a culture of booze more broadly in parliament, parliamentary behaviour. Um, and it's creating a few headaches inside the Nationals now. David Littleproud has intervened and called for Barnaby Joyce to take leave. He's embarrassed himself and he's embarrassed his family. Uh, but it's important to understand that there are circumstances that are greater than what has publicly been enunciated around a mixture of medication and alcohol. Uh, there's some family circumstances that he, his family need to deal with. And I encourage him to take some time to deal with that emotionally. So Fran Barnaby-Joyce 
is a polarising politician, but as we've seen over the years, he's got a stronghold of supporters who seem as kind of, uh, you know, a, a larrikin, a maverick, all of these words that are used, that has incredible cut through, and he is often forgiven. He's also been vying to take back the leadership of the Nationals. I do think this does massive damage to that cause. He's been muscling up over renewable energy and transmission lines in recent weeks. He's really pushed, if in fact, I think David Littleproud to take a tougher line on that so that he can kind of not be aped by Barnaby Joyce. But I also spoke with Keith Pitt, who is one of Barnaby Joyce's supporters, uh, front, you know, a, a very a senior national who really backed in Barnaby Joyce, saying he's he's one of the best performers, as he sees it. As you're going into an election season, you know, it could be a year away. You don't want to be benching that guy. Is was his argument? But is this a bigger headache for the nationals and the and the opposition? Well, I mean, it's a distraction for the Nats as this ongoing leadership struggles they've had now really for the last five years have been. The Nats party room is a divided party room and how this plays out in the Nats is one thing. But I think, you know, his behaviour that was captured on video and posted every for, for everyone to see has also raised questions about double standards in Parliament. You know, when independent Senator Lydia Thorpe was caught on camera during an early morning incident outside a strip club, she was swearing at a group of men. The Prime Minister and people Peter Dutton were quick to condemn her actions. They called for her to get help and support. She saw that as dog whistling about her mental health. Uh, the initial response to the Barnaby Joyce video from our political leaders was much more muted, much less strident. You know, I I'm sure, PK, if this video was of a, a female MP, the reaction now would be really different. And I suggest her political career would be affected if she was a member of the front bench of either of the parties. And, you know, I, I think there should be consequences for Barnaby Joyce. Uh, I'm sure he does have issues, as David Littleproud was referring to. He needs to sort them out. He may take some leave, as suggested. But you would think, well, I would think his position on the coalition front bench, at least in the short term, should be in question. Well, yeah, it, it clearly is in question. And I think that view that you just put forward, that women would be treated differently. That is definitely the view of women in the parliament, Labor, Liberal and beyond. <laughs> That's how they feel about it. They feel like they're held to a different standard. The broader issue about alcohol and the alcohol runs very free at these parliamentary events and a cross-party parliamentary committee has been working on a new draft code of conduct which will include a policy on responsible use of alcohol. But it won't be enforceable. It won't say what you can do. And ultimately, then it does become an issue of personal responsibility and standards and then responsibility on political parties to, to rein in people who perhaps are behaving, uh, you know, in ways that bring the parliament or themselves or their parties into disrepute. And that clearly has happened here. Yeah. And, you know, everyone looks on, people look on and go, well, if this was my workplace, I'd be in deep trouble here. We've seen many a case of CEOs, other executives doing things and, you know, paying a significant price for them. Yeah, that's right. Look, this is a good time, I think, to bring in our guest. Should we do it? Let's do it. <laughs> Narelda Jacobs, 10 News First Midday and Afternoons presenter and Noongar woman. Welcome to the party room. 
Thank you, PK and Fran. Lovely to be here. It's so good to have you, Narelda. Especially this week, a significant moment occurred. 16 years, incredibly, since then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd apologised to the Solon Generations in our Parliament. It's an anniversary I know that means a lot to many First Nations Australians, but of course it also follows the defeat of the voice referendum last year. Has that defeat, in your view, overshadowed the importance, if you like, of of the apology for a lot of First Nations people? Fran, I was actually in Canberra for the breakfast marking the uh, anniversary of the apology. And it was the first time uh, First Nations leaders and advocates and politicians, mind you, had been in the same room together since the uh, referendum defeat. Uh, And there was a lot of positivity in the room. Um, The speeches that were made at the event were you know, let's regroup, let's put that behind us, uh, let's now concentrate on improving outcomes for First Nations people. And and that was that then led to some pretty big announcements uh, from the government. And that's important because we haven't really heard much from Indigenous leadership since The Voice, you know, and we understand that many people were just sort of, you know, so dejected after that and the government's been accused of inaction. Mm-hmm. But just on the, the importance of the apology, just to stick with that for one second, does that day of that apology and the, the fact of that apology... Does that still resonate with First Nations Australian as a as a significant moment? Oh, absolutely! It's, it's a it's a huge uh, day in the year. My my own father was a member of the Solon Generation. He was taken when he was nine with his two younger brothers, um, snatched while his parents were working, and uh, he never went back to live with his family ever again. And, and in fact, his parents died while he was. Uh, on the mission, so you know that that left huge scars with my with my father, um, and you know they they say that the impacts of intergenerational trauma began with the the act of being stolen from mm. families, and so those um, intergenerational impacts. Making an apology, as we all know, signals that you'll never do it again. But the issues that we're facing with children being taken, we're, we're still facing those issues. Mm. It, it's largely regarded as another stolen generation, what we're seeing now, which made it quite fitting that the most important or the, the biggest uh, announcement that the Prime Minister made was um, this new First Nations Children's Commissioner, which is going to work with commissioners for other states and territories and predominantly tackle, tackling what is the biggest gap, and that is children in care. That was one of the big announcements. The government also, yeah, tabled the Closing the Gap statement. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, confirmed in that statement that only four of the 19 key areas are on track, Neralda, and four have actually gone backwards in the last year. Early childhood development, the rates of -of out-of-home care, adult imprisonment Mm. numbers have risen and so have suicide rates. So that's just not great news, right? And there there were some commitments. Here's the Prime Minister. Today I announced the creation of our remote jobs and economic development program. This is a better approach. It will fund community organisations to create 3,000 jobs in remote areas. Real jobs with proper wages and decent conditions. Jobs developed in partnership with Indigenous communities. I'm pleased to announce that we are establishing a National Commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people. Okay, so the government committing over $700 million towards this new jobs program for remote Australia, 3,000 new mm. positions in the next three years. Linda Burney has said it's about putting communities in the driver's seat. This, of course, comes, Narelda, after the Productivity Commission found governments were failing to listen, uh, surprise, yeah. surprise, uh, and uh, empower communities, warning that if nothing changes, the gap 
will continue to not close, which is the point of all of this. It's meant to close. So have we heard enough, in your view, Neralda, about where the government's going on trying to close the gap and empowering communities? I think we've had a fresh look at what is the problem here. And the Productivity Commission, their report made it so simple and it, it kind of lifted the, the the cloak of mystery. You know, there, there's always this question, how do we solve it? Where where do things go wrong? Well, they just made it simple, simple by saying it's been a government knows best approach and they haven't listened. They've come at the discussion table with preconceived solutions and ideas that they've almost retrofitted to every community and it's been wrong. And that's such a simple explanation of where it's gone wrong. So I think it was really refreshing to be in the sitting in the public gallery looking at the First Nations leaders who had earlier been at the apology breakfast, listening to the Prime Minister, the the one thing that got almost fist pumps from the public gallery, advocates and lobbyists who've been wanting this children's commissioner, there were beaming smiles and there were nods of agreement. So it was a signal that finally we've been listened to. Mm. The government has said it is still committed to the other pillars of, you know, Mm. Makarata, Treaty and Truth. But the government says treaty is now a matter for the states, some of whom are getting on with it in varying degrees. Um, Treaties are being undertaken. I remember last year in the run-up to The Voice, I spoke with former Senator Patrick Dodson about whether there should be a federal treaty. And and he put it to me that if you're the federal government, you know, this is why he was advocating for a voice. He said, otherwise, who do you do a treaty with? You can't just walk down the street and ask Mm. a couple of blackfellas to do a deal. So that's why he was saying they needed the voice. I mean, is his point right? A federal government is not the place to start for treaty or do people, Indigenous Australians, hear the government say this is a matter for states and feel like they're passing the buck? Yeah, he's definitely got a point there because when you you look at, you know, the traditional map of Australia, they're made up of countries much like Europe. You know, they're, they're small countries and so they're the nations that governments need to negotiate with. So there is a point who... If it's a federal treaty, who then do you negotiate with? I, I see where they're what they're saying with leaving it to states and territories, but is it passing the buck? I think there is definitely a role for the federal government to play, and it would be nice to see some leadership from the top on this. But the reason there's been a go slow, and it's clearly a mm. go slow, is because that that thumping defeat for the referendum, and mm. it was thumping has made them scared, scared to talk about these issues. Gun shy. Um, they are. And, and on the other adjacent issue, the other third issue in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is basically a truth-telling process, I spoke to Linda Burney and she told me um, they were going to work on it. Consul- there was a lot of consulting words and then, you know, maybe it's something in the curriculum um, rather mm. than what, you know, happened in South Africa where there was a proper commission that was able to discuss things. It's actually something that's also happening in Victoria. They seem to be maybe even walking away from that. Well, a treaty and truth are both things that are quite long-term uh, achievements. So are they just wanting to commit to things that they can achieve in this term or before the, the next election? If they do commit to treaty, what could they possibly achieve in one year? No, that's true. But I, I mean, I remember Linda Burney for many years talking about the need to, and this was something that I think we learnt during the referendum, that the community is just not 
you know, which most of us don't just know enough about our history, what happened to Indigenous Australians. There's a there's sort of just like an information gap. And Linda Burney for years has been suggesting that this is the groundwork that needs to be done. Isn't that a role for the federal government to set up something called a Makarata Commission? It doesn't have to be like the South African um, body. It could be doing this work of making sure, whatever that takes, curriculum's just one small part of it, that we get on as a nation to having this discussion and understanding the issues here. Mm. Yes, well, they did commit to the Uluru Statement in full. That's what the, that's the first thing the Prime Minister did uh, yeah. when he was elected. He committed to the Uluru Statement in full. And so the Makarata Commission is part of the Uluru Statement. So they have to make a commitment and they have to start demonstrating that they're working towards making that commitment. But after that bruising defeat, do they want to? Are they kicking the can down the road a bit? Mm. They're clearly uh, worried about the way that the community might respond. And I think that has a lot to do with the the rest of the politics at the moment, cost of living crisis. People are clearly feeling uh, disgruntled. So there is a carefulness around it, isn't there, Nerelda? There is a carefulness. And I think the Children's Commissioner was probably an easy thing to do, Mm. but it will actually have the greatest impact because it can deal with so many gaps. Mm. Um, On another issue entirely, this week the federal government brought forward plans to criminalise doxing. Uh, That followed the names of members of a WhatsApp group involving hundreds of Jewish Creative Australians uh, got revealed online. Uh, Doxing, if you don't understand it, it's it's a term that means the release of private information like phone numbers, emails, addresses online to the wider public without the user's user's consent. It's usually with malicious intent. It can have real impacts. I mean, in this case, it wasn't phone numbers and addresses, but some of those people who were named have said that they've felt uh, experienced threats. Um, Some have gone into hiding. I mean, it's a very, very intense issue right now. But Narelda, more broadly than just the situation um, and the impact of the, the Gaza conflict right now here in our society, more broadly, Do we need stronger doxing laws here? Well, you have to look at the motivation for bringing it in in the first place because the timing suggests that it's all about what we're seeing at the moment being played out in a really ugly way. But has doxing actually happened? And we've only seen the release of names. Mm. Yeah, is this doxing if it doesn't have their their addresses and phone numbers? Correct. And have they been doxxed if they have been part of a WhatsApp group with 600 people? Is that considered a public group? And also, if we bring in new laws, will the media be captured in those laws? Because the media reported on these groups and named people. So where is the public... Is- there a public interest in in naming people. Um, so there, there, there's got to be a lot of considerations with these laws and it has a potential to have other consequences. Let's park that one and talk about something else that's not new, but it bubbles and it gets more intense mm. all the time, and that's housing. It's been a real pressure point for the Albanese government and now a bargaining chip for the Greens. And this week, the housing wars again reared their head. The Greens confirming they will only support Labor's help-to-buy scheme if negative gearing was scrapped. Now, the PM was quick to say, no deal. Uh, Narelda, is this opening bid the Greens' way of keeping housing 
and this mantle that they've built that they're the party of renters on the political mm. agenda. Yeah, well, they're not the only ones because the, the Teals are gunning for this as well. David Pocock is um, is right there with negative gearing. But the, the Greens are looking for any way to maintain their position as the party for renters uh, right through the next election because, as they keep pointing out, 30% of people rent in Australia. So there are a lot of votes out there. But to look at negative gearing, which encourages investors in the market, and so investors own rental properties, which are rented by the 30% of renters. So if you discourage negative gearing, then are you discouraging investors who assist in <laughs> rental for pro- rent. property? So it's, yes, places for rent. So Unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But but there are unintended consequences. Doesn't I'm not suggesting you know it shouldn't be done. I think that all things should always be looked at closely. But it's not a simple thing, is it? No. It's so and it gets back to the, the the root of are there enough houses to go round? Are there enough houses to rent? Are there enough houses to buy for first home buyers? Um, so it's it's just this real headache. But. There are 30% of people who rent, but are they being forced out of the market by investors who are attracted because of tax benefits? And and um, I think we shouldn't forget that. Those tax benefits are huge. They're worth billions of dollars every year of taxes Mm. that is lost, revenue that's lost for the general population for spending on schools or unis or hospitals or whatever it is. Um, It's also about general revenue. I think it should not be seen just in the context of a housing debate, but really about tax reform. And we're not looking at it in that way at the moment. Yeah. And it's almost a generational thing because people who are looking to buy now, the people who are wanting to get into the property market, younger younger Australians, are only just being able to afford to buy the house that they're going to live in. They're not even looking at buying investment properties. So if you grandfather policies like that, it's going to make the divide of the haves and haves and have-nots even bigger. It's not going to go away. They're going to be using this because it is popular amongst 30% of voters. A cohort it's popular with and then unpopular with others. And this is why for Labor yes. they... They are treading so carefully. Narelda, you've allowed us to pick your brain and we thank you for it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Ready to party anytime with you ladies. Thanks, <laughs> thank Narelda. You. See you. <laughs> thank you. Bye. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Well, the bells are ringing. It's time for our question time here on The Party Room and this week's question comes from Troy. It's my understanding that politicians need to disclose financial interests and divest where appropriate. Am I right in thinking that politicians can contribute to legislation that could benefit themselves through housing? And my question is, should politicians with investment properties be excluded from the policy debate? Frankly, it all seems a little bit fox in the hen house to me. Interesting question, and we have seen uh, the publishing of stories recently of, of you know, the, the people in the parliament who have investment properties, and there are many, and so I think it is a good question. But I don't think they should be excluded, and I'll explain why. There is, in my view, almost no legislation where someone doesn't have a benefit or or an impact on their lives. So if you were to sort of exclude yourself from different debates based on how it might affect you. I'll give you an example, Medicare. I mean, (laughs) everyone benefits to different extents from Medicare, which is, you know, meant to be this universal healthcare system. Another one, of course, superannuation. And another good example, which shows to me that I don't think you necessarily see people 
change policies based on their own, what benefits them, uh, is income tax. Now, the Labor Party has literally just changed a policy, broken a promise, that, and it's been contentious, on tax cuts where it will materially affect them. They are higher income earners, so they're not going to get the big benefit they were going to get in July under the previous laws. They've essentially given themselves a cut in the tax they're going to get. And so I think that, you know, you can make decisions that are in the public interest. You can. It doesn't mean everyone does, but you can and still um, have, for instance, investment properties. The Greens is a good example. Some of them have investment properties and yet they're advocating for a change in that policy. So I don't think it actually has a material impact for everyone at all. Um, Do I think we should know, though? Yeah, I think we should know things like this. And, and that's why I think people have been writing the stories. But I don't think it has a material impact. What do you think, Fran? I noticed Senator David Pocock saying this this year in the last month or two repeatedly, how can it not affect their politicians' sort of mindset when they come to this? And to some extent, I think that's true. But to some extent, it reflects the mindset of millions of Australians who have an investment property. So, you know, it's not to be discounted. Um, However, I think 65% actually of all federal parliamentarians who own two or more properties, which is, you know, that's a a lot of our parliamentarians, that's true. But I think the problem comes when we look at as I said, mentioned before, when we're talking to Narelda, it's perhaps the number of properties. I mean, some politicians own seven properties. One owns m- many more than that. So, you know, this is where I think the boundaries need to be drawn. Are our politicians influenced in their position on these things? Yes, well, to some extent they are. That goes for everything. Do you have to absent yourself? No, but you, it needs to, I suppose, be recognised and you need to understand that the community will look on, all those people who can't afford any house, and go, well, that's all right for them, isn't it? And, it's, and, and that can fuel community anger. So, you know, they need to be cautious. They certainly need to declare their ownership. Yeah, the, the, the personal is the political, Fran. Send your questions in because we do like getting questions and that was a really good one, uh, an interesting one about boundaries and ethics and the way we have debates. We like the voice notes and you can email them to the party room at abc.net.au. Yeah, good one, Troy. Thank you. And remember, everyone, you can follow the party room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And just an update, last week we told you you might want to get to Mardi Gras Fair Day because we were doing a party room live. Well, Fair Day has been cancelled because there's asbestos found in some of the park. So there's no Fair Day. There's no Party Room Live. There's no judging the dog competition at Fair Day for me, which I'm hugely disappointed about. You must be devastated. I am devastated. Do you know what an honour that is? Anyway, it's a really unfortunate, really sad thing. It's a fantastic community event. But we won't be there. Nobody will be. No, hopefully uh, next year it will all be up and running and... We'll be back. Bindi will win the prize and, you know, my my faith in humanity will be restored, Fran. Okay, that's it for the party room this week. See you next week, Fran. See you, PK.